Hey everyone, this is Manny Faces, the producer and host of Newsbeat. Welcome to another electrifying episode tackling social justice issues that simply don't receive enough attention, airtime, or action. So here's the deal. We all know the drill when it comes to America's criminal injustice system. Arrest, conviction, imprisonment, throw away the key. Justice served. Well, this episode introduces the concept of restorative justice, in which crime victims actually have a say in the punishment handed down to their offenders. So instead of universal prison time, atonement might come in the form of community service, or in a face-to-face meeting, or any number of acts of redress that those affected see as fit. Now, this actually isn't a radical new approach, but it's a centuries-old practice that, again, empowers victims and paves the road for true healing. So walking us through this is Danielle Serrid, Executive Director of Nonprofit Common Justice and author of Until We Reckon, Violence, Mass Incarceration, and a Road to Repair. Followed by Rachel Barkow, Professor of Law at the New York University School of Law and Faculty Director of the Center on the Administration of Criminal Law, as well as the author of the book Prisoner of Politics, Breaking the Cycle of Mass Incarceration and Chesa Boudin, a public defender running for district attorney in San Francisco. Now, translating this all into incredible hip-hop verses is Brooklyn by way of Paris Afrobeat and hip-hop artist Napoleon the Legend. Remember, after the episode, please be sure to rate us and review us on your favorite podcast app. We appreciate the love. You can find out all about us and read a story that accompanies this and every one of our episodes on our website, usnewsbeat.com. All right, here it is. This is restorative justice, healing instead of incarceration. We have this myth as a country that we've done mass incarceration in crime victims' names. It is true that politicians have invoked crime victims in almost all of their efforts to impose draconian sentences, whether that's in individual cases or as a matter of policy. Today, the bickering stops. The era of excuses is over. The law-abiding citizens of our country have made their voices heard. Never again should Washington put politics and party above law and order. Law and order must be restored. It is true that some crime victims have asked for those draconian sentences. Those crime victims are actually, for the most part, the outliers. In some ways, I think the most interesting thing we've learned at Common Justice is about what crime survivors want. So it's important to remember fewer than half of victims call the police in the first place. That means our pretense that the criminal justice system for them is terrible, like 50% is already an F, right, at our starting point. And even of those half who engage the police in the first place, another half won't make it past the grand jury, the first stage of the court process. At Common Justice, we reach out to those victims, so arguably the jailingest subset of victims you'll find, and reach out to those among them who've had guns to their heads, who've been seriously assaulted, who've been stabbed, who sometimes even have been shot at. And we ask them, do you want Common Justice or do you want incarceration for the person who hurt you? And 90% choose common justice, 90%. It's a wild number. And when I first saw that number, I sort of thought that people were better than I knew. You know, that we thought, but for the grace of God go I, that we were merciful, that we were forgiving. And I don't actually think that's the main thing that's happening. 
Like at the end of the day, there are two things crime survivors can't abide. We can't abide the thought of going through what we went through again, and we can't abide the thought of someone else going through what we went through. So if we're faced with a choice between two options to address the pain we've experienced, whatever we feel, whatever rage, whatever vengeance we want, we'll choose the thing that we think produces safety. And there are very few people it's harder to persuade that incarceration produces safety than people who live in neighborhoods where incarceration is common because they have paid the price for this massively failed social experiment that we've carried out over the last four decades. We love prisons so much, a shocking number of Americans are currently inside one, as we learned last week during a House Judiciary Committee hearing. Our nation now has the greatest number of prisoners of any country in the world. Nearly one in every 100 adults in America is in prison or jail. That's true. We have over two million people behind bars right now. We have more prisoners at the moment than China. Than China. Restorative justice is much older, and I would argue wiser, than any of the ways we address harm now. Restorative justice practices have their roots in indigenous traditions across the world, sort of anywhere where people have come together and said, if we don't want to kill them and we don't want to put them in a cage, what do we do? Like, what do we do when our people harm each other? Like, how do we continue to move forward as a community? How do we keep people safe? How do we hold people accountable? And versions of this process emerge with striking similarity around the world in answer to that question. The practices are ancient. They're practiced all over this country in ways that have lineage with those indigenous traditions and in ways that grown up in neighborhoods where it makes sense. Like you hurt people, you bring people together to repair that harm. One of the things restorative justice considers is who owes what to whom. So in the criminal justice system, we're concerned with broken laws. In restorative justice, we're concerned with the harm that's done. We must take back the streets. It doesn't matter whether or not the person that is accosting your son or daughter or my son or daughter, my wife, your husband, my mother, your parents, it doesn't matter whether or not they were deprived as a youth. It doesn't matter or not whether or not they had no background that enabled them to become socialized into the fabric of society. It doesn't matter whether or not they're the victims of society. The end result is they're about to knock my mother on the head with a lead pipe, shoot my sister, beat up my wife, take on my sons. So I don't want to ask, what made them do this? They must take it off the street. We will not end mass incarceration unless we take on the question of violence. More than half of people in America are locked up for crimes of violence. That means we're not getting a reduction by more than half by ignoring more than half of the people there. You don't have to be a statistician to know that. But the deeper part about that is the role violence plays in our cultural addiction to prison. We don't choose prisons over roads and prisons over hospitals and prisons over schools because we're concerned about somebody who repeatedly shoplifts. We do that because we've been told this story of some imagined monstrous other, somebody who is lacking in empathy, who is so different from us, so incapable of the kind of human decency and compassion that we know characterizes us and our families, that we have to be protected from that person at any cost and by the state. 
That story is not new. It is as old as this country, and it is as racist as this country. And by that, I mean it has always been a story about black and brown people. United States, where they incarcerate at the highest rate. You made the whole populace afraid. Gotta keep them safe since the age of slaves. Inmates inside a cage. Families destroyed, adding fuel to the flame. Rage, the narrative for the black and brown is that they dangerous. Cops randomly patting me down, but is it helping? Keep the stats for recidivism in the prison. Mental health problems we have to live with. Indigenous folks had a better approach. When the victims and the perpetrators sat down and spoke. Restorative justice. Better laws, no corrupt judges in this racist country These oligarchs is doing numbers while the people suffer Poverty is labeled criminal, that's why we must overhaul the system It is critical, from the inmate to the jailer A big failure, sing it loud and let it resonate like the voice of Mahalia So at Common Justice, after really extensive preparation The people responsible for harm come together with those they've harmed and their support people. So families, friends, mentors, people with a stake in the outcome. And they address the harm that was done. They address the impact it's had on everyone. And they reach agreements about what the responsible person can do to make things as right as possible. Those agreements would include things you expect, like go to school, get a job, apologize, pay restitution, do community service. Things you might not expect, like in one case, the harmed party, the crime victim said, I want you to meet the children whose father you almost took from them that night with your gun. And I believe today in the father you can be to your baby girl, and I want you to say that to her face. I think alternatives to incarceration are a very promising space to think about how we want to address crimes that involve violence. The big question mark with those programs is really scalability. You know, how do you think about a program model like that for the number of people that we're talking about? Because these restorative justice programs as they exist right now tend to be relatively small. And if we're talking about roughly half of the prison population in there for a crime of violence, that means it they would need to be able to handle about a million people. And so thinking about how you're going to move that model to a million people is not easy. You know, so I think that's the big question mark for that model. But I think it's worth thinking about how to do it for sure. And I think it's also worth thinking about how, you know, where is it most efficient to use it? Where is it most effective to use it? My understanding is that it works and works best when everyone involved wants to use it, including the victims of these crimes. So we're still going to need to tackle the cases where the victims say, no, you know, or they don't want to use it. You know, so we still need to reform sentencing practices, sentence lengths and all those other things. But in the space that restorative justice presents itself as an option and it and it does make people feel better off. You know, I think it's terrific. I, I think it's something that we should try to scale up. It's something that we should try to expand for sure. Prosecutors here in Washington, D.C. are trying a new approach to handling kids who get on the wrong side of the law. They have launched a program called Restorative Justice. It connects young people with their victims in order to find a way forward. The idea is that justice doesn't always have to involve punishment or retribution. And if the process works, the juvenile offender walks away with a clean criminal record. I do think that the themes in my book and restorative justice have in common a few things. You know, so one is that the further away people are from crime or from the issues around criminal justice, the less informed they are and the more likely they are to be punitive and embrace this kind of tough at all costs approach. 
I think that's what gets us, you know, voters who just don't necessarily know the entirety of the population that are committing crimes, don't really understand the backstory or have no concept of what happens when someone goes to prison. Because I do think if there was a better understanding of how little we do for people when they're incarcerated, that we're not really helping them to come out and deal with whatever problems led them to commit their criminal behaviors in the first place. And if anything, potentially might be setting them up to be worse off because, you know, now we've distanced them from social networks and support that they need. You know, I think if people understood that, if they understood that most people do come out of prison, you know, I think the public probably doesn't know that 10,000 people come out of jails and prisons every week in America. So, you know, that's 10,000 people rejoining. So you'd want them to be kind of ready to really re-enter successfully and not commit whatever offense, you know, they did in the first place. And I think restorative justice thinks about those kinds of things, really thinks about, you know, how do we make somebody who's committed an act really think about what they did and reflect upon it so it doesn't happen again. You know, I think it is about making the situation better for everyone involved. So it's much more forward-looking in that way. You know, we should really not just want to kind of kick the can down the road and say, wow, this really awful crime happened. Let's just, you know, lock someone away that they're going to come back out again. And we've done nothing to deal with the underlying issues or problems. And I, and I do think really we need to place far more emphasis on that. But one thing, I guess, where I would not part company with restorative justice, but I might just emphasize the systemic issues that we have. Because, you know, the one thing about restorative justice is very individualized. It's, you know, very much the person who's committed a crime thinking about why they did what they did. But there are so many systemic forces that operate on people and their choices. You know, for that, we need systemic changes. You know, we definitely need to think about urban renewal and the kind of education we offer people and, you know, what kind of physical and mental health services are provided in particular communities. And, you know, we need to think about job opportunities because those all would be the big system-wide things that are also really critical for crime prevention. And so I guess for me, it's restorative justice and, you know, it would never be only that, but I think it should always be part of the equation. Since after slavery, lock them up and throw away the key, but how we supposed to eat when it's low wages in these streets? 50% is violent crime, but they get out and still the same, maybe worse. Ain't no rehabilitation in this game, it's inhumane. Bumping gangster rap to entertain, brainwashing youngsters looking for their five minutes of fame with draconian sentences and Napoleon references, leading them from innocence to felonious precipice. That's all political though. The plot's shaking underneath that. Incarceration is for profit making. And getting votes quick, blurs, hot takes, and quotes Making cash on the backs of these godforsaken folks If you think it's not racist, you stupid No beers, you drank fear How about you face the music? Make them feel the consequence of what they did Whether you pushed the law, made the law, or you did a bit When I was in diapers, my parents left me at the babysitter They never came back to get me That day, they participated as unarmed drivers in a tragically bungled armed robbery that left three men dead. My mother ended up serving 22 years in prison. My father is still incarcerated, and he may never get out. Now, as a result of that, my earliest memories are going through steel gates to visit my parents, just to give them a hug. Years of prison visits taught me hard lessons about how broken our criminal justice system is, about how broken it is for the people who commit crimes and are not rehabilitated or held accountable in a way that allows them to heal the harm they've caused, how broken it is for victims of crime who have so little to show for the billions of dollars that we spend on mass incarceration, and of course, how broken it is for the taxpayers and the communities that are left paying the price for this failed system. I was really lucky that my family engaged in 
restorative justice practices to help me heal from the trauma of my parents' incarceration. Things like building relationships with my parents over time, getting to know them, getting to have them not just say sorry, but do sorry over the course of years and years of visits and letters and phone calls, taught me that my parents weren't just bad people. They had done a terrible thing, but it wasn't my fault. And like so many people who are impacted by crime, I blamed myself as a child. I felt that if I'd been more lovable, or if I'd been old enough to tell my parents not to go, not to risk losing me, not to participate in this horrific crime, that I could have prevented this tragedy. And so it took a tremendous amount of community support and of restorative practices at home and on prison visits for me to move past the trauma and the stigma and the shame and move on with my life. We lay out in great detail in a written policy our vision for restorative justice, and it's based on the successful implementation of common justice and impact justice in so many other places around the country that are pioneering restorative justice work. Because we're going to allow any victim who chooses to participate to do so, no matter how serious the case, it means that we're going to potentially have some very, very serious cases that would be involved in a restorative justice process. We have not committed to eliminating as a possibility jail or prison, even after a successful restorative justice process. And I know that in some ways that's a distinction between some of the more traditional restorative justice programs, but the goal is to be as broad and inclusive as possible and to encourage people to participate, even when, as in some cases, they would be deterred from doing so by the idea that there would be uh, no traditional accountability or punishment. Now, over time, depending on what the victims want and how successful the program is, I'm very open to expanding to a place where we wouldn't seek jail or prison at all. But I think in the short term, the goal is to have as many people participate as, as possible and to use it to heal the harm victims have suffered and to reduce where we can't eliminate jail and prison as part of the punishment. I can't tell you how many times in my career as a public defender, I've reached out to a victim of crime to get their side of the story, to hear what their priorities are, and to have them tell me that I was the first person to contact them. Not the police following up on the initial report, not the district attorney to tell them that charges had been filed or what to expect as the case worked its way through the courts. And it's really alienating and dehumanizing to victims to often feel like they're being used to secure a criminal conviction and a serious punishment without any meaningful input from them. And one of the things that we see with all too much frequency in the criminal justice system is that if victims are really assertive about making their voice heard and demanding harsher punishment, then prosecutors and judges will often listen to them and will often try to give voice to those demands. But when victims step up and say, you know, all I want is someone to fix the broken window. I don't want him to go to prison. I don't care if he has a felony on his record. I want him to do the work to fix the window that he broke or to paint the fence that he put graffiti on. Often those demands and those voices are silenced. So the goal with restorative justice is really to remember that victims are the ones who suffer and the criminal justice system needs to start by trying to heal the suffering. Our entire criminal justice system is built on an assumption that 
people who commit harm are inherently bad people. The people who are hurt want vengeance more than they want something like safety or repair. That the interests of those who commit harm and the interests of those who are harmed are diametrically opposed. And that no one belongs to both categories. All of those things are wrong. People who commit harm are accountable for what they've done. Nothing they've survived excuses them from that accountability. The fact that they themselves have also been stabbed, that they themselves were abused, that they themselves buried their loved ones who were too young to die when they were too young to bury people does not excuse the violence they committed. But at the same time, the fact that they went on to commit violence does not reduce our responsibility to them as people who were survivors of pain. Similarly, our survivors, in whose name we have built mass incarceration, when we listen to them, tell us over and over again that they want something else. That's not because they like innovation. It's not because they are progressive. It's because they want something that works. Crime survivors who want something other than prison are living in neighborhoods where the pain of the status quo has become unbearable, where the notion that incarceration would deliver us from violence has been disproven over and over and over again. And so people want something that will deliver us from violence. That's not about their politics. It's not about their compassion. It's not about their appetite for innovation and risk. It is about their pragmatism. And it's the pragmatism of crime survivors more than almost anything that we've erased from our picture of them. Yo, what's the life worth in the system? What is inequality when crime's committed? Mostly the rich ones get acquitted. We gotta reconcile the crime with the victim, valid or not valid. Every situation different, and it's not an easy task, especially for big cities. But it's time to admit mass incarceration is kind of silly. Common justice, where redemption could be nascent. Healing can occur, in most cases it's human nature. A society's only as good as its worst parts. And they try to hide it from us like an ugly birthmark. And yo, a single mistake can seal your fate Families break while these prison owners divvy the cake And the victims almost have no say in the process To humanize it This entire system needs progress It's gonna take a lot of years And politicians switching chairs Let's vote restorative justice for the fiscal year Yeah, 